So it's clear from our passage this morning, we're going to be talking about temptation. The temptation of Jesus Christ and his overcoming, his victory. Everyone sitting in this room is acquainted with temptation. Everyone in this room is acquainted both with victory and also with defeat. As we look into the passage this morning and we see the the secret to overcoming, I I put as a a header in in your notes that overcoming sin happens through faith in God. That's the key. That's how it happens. That's the summary of this morning's message. That's what we'll see as we look at the life of Jesus Christ and as we begin to see how, how does overcoming happen for Jesus? How does it take place in his life? How can we use the same resources that Jesus put to work and how can we experience victory for ourselves as well? Three times in our passage, Jesus will say, in response to temptation, it is written. It is written. It is said. And so, for us, temptation, overcoming temptation, happens as we submit ourselves to the Word of God. John Bunyan would put it this way. He says, sin will keep you from this book, or this book will keep you from sin. And certainly, that will be true in our passage this morning But in what way does the Bible help to keep you from sin? And what are we to do in order to use the scriptures to help us experience this kind of victory? Well, as we look at our passage and we begin to see the life of Jesus, I think the answer may surprise you. Maybe by way of illustration, we can just think about the life of David going back to the Old Testament David, who experienced this massive victory early on in his life as the shepherd boy, and later on this agony of defeat as the king. What was it about David that allowed him to experience victory on the battlefield with Goliath, and then later to trip up and to fall into sin as a king? Well, it boils down to this, using the word to cultivate faith. Because fundamentally, what we'll see is that your sin problem is a defective faith problem. It's a deficiency in faith. We will see how Jesus amplifies and nurtures and cultivates his confidence in God, his faith in God through the word of God, and that is what he is able to employ in order to experience victory. Think about how Goliath came out, and and interestingly, Goliath comes to, it says, defy the armies of Israel this day. He says, give me a man that we may fight, and he does this for 40 days. David saw this for what it was when he came to visit his brothers. He recognized that this defiance of Goliath was not just a defiance against Israel, but particularly a defiance against God. He says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David is looking at the character of God to bolster his heart and to lead him to faith. (laughs) So David says, okay, buddy, let's bring it. He goes to Saul, King Saul. He says, let me take care of this guy for you. And Saul said, no, 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 no. You don't understand, David. You're too small. You're too weak. You're too inexperienced. You're too young. You have no weaponry. 
this is a bad idea. David says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. I am anchoring my confidence in the character of God. And that is what led him to victory. David, when faced with Goliath and the taunts of Goliath, says to him, you come with me, come to me with sword and with spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I am staking my confidence in the character of God, and he will take care of you, Goliath. You're no match for him. Overcoming sin is a bolstering of faith. Overcoming sin is anchored in your commitment to the character of God and what you know about God in his word. Fast forward to David as king and his sin with Bathsheba and it was an issue of character, not depending on the character of God. Nathan comes and confronts David and says, reminds him of who God is. He says, God anointed you king of Israel, David. He gave you your master's house, your master's wives, the house of Israel and Judah. If that had been too little, he would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord? Why have you rejected confidence in the God who is over Israel? That is what has led to your defeat. That is what's led to your sin. You did not bolster your heart in faith. You did not remember the character of God, and so you were vulnerable and susceptible. You committed sin against God because you did not believe who God was. You forgot about his provision, his protection and promise, and so you sinned. You see, the results of sin fundamentally are always a result of faith, a deficiency in faith in God. So here we come to our passage in Luke chapter 4. I would encourage you to open there with me if you haven't already. It's uh, in the Pew Bible. It's on page 859. It begins this way, And Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, ended he was hungry. Jesus is at the Jordan because Jesus had gone to be baptized by John the Baptist. This was essentially the, the, the commissioning of his public ministry. It was a way for Jesus to be affirmed and confirmed by the triune God as the Holy Spirit would come in bodily form like a dove and, and light on Jesus and fill him for ministry and power. And the Father, his audible voice from heaven, confirming his Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus goes to the Jordan to be baptized. It was a baptism of repentance. But Jesus doesn't do this because he had something to repent for. He didn't do this because he had sin to confess. He didn't do this because he needed forgiveness. He did this because he was demonstrating the way to God. He did this because of his righteousness in fulfilling all righteousness. Jesus demonstrated humility to God. 
He demonstrated faith in God. He showed a life of submission in yielding to God. He showed that whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, whether you were religious or a sinner, whatever the posture of your heart as you submitted and yielded to God, that God alone was the solution for saving faith and deliverance. Jesus demonstrated, even in his sinlessness, he modeled submission to the Father. That's what happens for us in repentance. When we repent, we submit ourselves to God and we yield our life to him in obedience. My life is not my own. It belongs to God. And so I will live by faith. I will look to him alone for salvation. I will yield my life to him. So Jesus, his life in ministry was confirmed by the Father as he speaks from heaven. Right after the baptism, we see this awkward pause in the narrative, this genealogy in chapter 3, verses 23 to 38. And we may ask ourselves the question, what is this all about? Especially as it, as it follows the announcement of God the Father, this is my beloved Son. And now there is a connection with a physical lineage that traces back to Adam. Notice in verse 23, Jesus when he begins his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then dropping down to verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Why does Luke decide to add this genealogy at such an awkward place? Why doesn't he, like Matthew, begin with a genealogy and set the record straight at the very beginning? It was a because in response to the announcement of the father of saying, this is my beloved son now, he wants to demonstrate that Jesus, although being the son of God, is also the son of man. He is fully man and fully God. And the following narrative, this temptation, will also continue to reinforce that fact that as a man he could be tempted, but as God he would prevail. And as depending upon the power of God and the word of God and submitting his heart to the Father, he would be able to experience the same kind of victory that God invites us to experience through faith in the same things. So was Adam a son of God? As you look at the Greek, you'll see that the son is not actually used in the Greek. It's just the definite article with a, in the genitive case, which leads to and helps you understand procession of. Literally, it is, in verse 38, Enos of Seth of Adam of God. The point is procession. The point is that Jesus came from Adam, but ultimately came from God. Descended from Adam, but one who was tempted in every way, yet without sin, who experienced the physicality, experienced real temptation, but prevailed in the power of God. With that as the background, we step into chapter four. And we begin to ask ourselves the question, why the wilderness? What is the significance of the Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness? What, what is the big deal? What is the point? What does this accomplish? I want to demonstrate to you that the wilderness represents a test of dependence. The wilderness represents a test of dependence. 
Who will Jesus depend on? Who will he believe? What will he anchor his heart and soul in? What will he have faith in? In verse 1 of chapter 4, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. The correlating passage in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 says much the same. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This word wilderness is the word of the uninhabited parts of Judea, the desert, absent of inhabitants, the lonely and solitary places. The wilderness of Judea where Jesus was most likely tempted was the most barren, most desolate region in all of Israel. Here Jesus is led by the Spirit. But what is the significance of being led into the wilderness? The significance of Jesus being led into the wilderness is to demonstrate that there was nothing for Jesus to depend on but God. There was no protection. There was no recourse. There was no shelter. There were no uh, natural resources around him. He was exposed. He was vulnerable. And all he had was God. And that was the point. The point was that God put him in a place. Will you depend on me? Or will you take matters into your own hands? Throughout Jesus' ministry, he will intentionally go into the wilderness to demonstrate this same kind of commitment. A commitment to trust in God alone. In chapter 4, verse 42, it says, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. That's the same word. In verse, chapter 5, verse 16, But he would often withdraw to a desolate place to pray. Jesus embraced the solitude. Jesus embraced the exposure in the vulnerability of the wilderness to demonstrate that his faith was anchored in God and that was enough. The wilderness represents dependence on God without resource, exposed to the elements, unprotected and vulnerable, alone and isolated, but he could trust in God who was able to help. This was, by the way, the very reason why God drove Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness, as we find in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 15. Speaking of God who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the thirsty rock or flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the land, in the end, to, to, to demonstrate that he was the one establishing a, co a covenant with them and he could be trusted. God drove them into a place where they looked around and there was no other recourse but God. And God wanted to establish his character. I am dependable. You can trust me. That was the point of the wilderness. In our passage, we'll see a number of correlations to the wilderness. Jesus being there for 40 days, as we see in verse 2. And then every quote that we find Jesus using against Satan will be coming from Deuteronomy. This retelling of the law that was given to Israel while they were in the wilderness. The wilderness was a place where God wanted to establish once and for all, you can trust me. 
Satan will, in this, in this passage, will call into question God's character. He will seek to disrupt Jesus' faith in God. He will call into question the things about God that will sever Jesus' heart from obedience and keep him from enjoying victory. We're going to look at them this morning. He will tempt Jesus in relation to the provision of God, the power of God, and the promise of God. Is God dependable? Notice with me in verses 3 and 4, Satan challenges Jesus in the area of the provision of God. And Jesus anchors his heart to depend upon that provision. God is dependable. He is a God who provides. I can trust him. Notice at the uh, verse 2, for 40 days being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days, and they were ended. He was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, this word he was being tempted is a present participle, which means that these three temptations we see in our passage are just the tip of the iceberg in terms of all that Jesus experienced. But they kind of summarize and encapsulate for us the, the three main areas where Satan will try to come against you and to try to win victory over your soul. Matthew and Mark record these temptations and also help us understand the ongoing nature of the temptation from the first day of his time in the wilderness to the last. But Jesus, being tempted, comes to the place of, of recognizing, that, uh, this, uh, recognizing this for what it was. Jesus recognized that this was a, a heart issue. It was an issue of faith. It was an issue of provision. It was an issue not of eating, which was not wrong in itself, and God would eventually come and supply for Jesus' uh, um, uh, hunger, but it was wrong for Jesus to question the provision of God and to act on his own. That was the issue. That's why Jesus responds, man shall not live by bread alone. Taken from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 taken from this wilderness experience, taken from this, this testing of God and proving that God was enough. It says, and he humbled you. He let you hunger. He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God allowed Israel to be hungry, to drive them to the place of coming to grips with the fact that he alone could provide. Do you trust me? I am the great provider. That was the lesson. Depend on God's character. He provided the manna, the water, and he also provided the clothes that would not wear out. He provided shoes that did not wear through. But what did the people of Israel do? Time and time and time again, they complained. They complained in Exodus chapter 5. They complained in Exodus chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 17. They complained in Numbers 11, Numbers 12, Numbers 14, Numbers 16. Complain, complain, complain. 
And by their complaining, they demonstrated they had no heart of faith. By their complaining, they demonstrated they did not believe the character of God. He could not provide as he had promised to do. Sin is a result of defective faith. Not believing the character of God that he can and will provide. Fundamentally, so much of our sin comes down to this issue, doesn't it? Asking ourselves, is he good enough? Is he strong enough? Is he kind enough? Is he able? And in this way, the wilderness illustrates dependence on God. In the midst of a barren wilderness, in desolation, in lack of resources, God wants to establish once and for all, I am the God who provides. Do you trust me? So that's even built into the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. You don't need to stockpile. You don't need to plan for the future. I'll provide for you. Trust me. I can do it. I'm a God who provides. The next issue we find in verses 5 to 8 is an issue of power. And Jesus committed himself to depend on the power of God. Not just the provision of God, but the power of God. Notice, it begins in verse 5. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and all their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Satan challenges Jesus in the area of authority and power. The question is, does Satan even have this power to offer? Where does this power come from? Well, we find throughout the New Testament, Jesus refers to Satan as the the God of this world. So he did have a measure of delegated authority, delegated power that Satan was willing to give up to Jesus. In John 14, verse 30 and 31, Jesus speaks about Satan as the ruler of this world. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of the world is coming, speaking of Satan. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, the apostle Paul also speaks of Satan in these terms when he says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, speaking again of Satan. Satan had been given a measure of authority, but ultimate authority belonged to God, and Jesus, in this moment of temptation, needed to anchor his heart in confidence in God the Father as being the one alone who could give ultimate authority. Going back to Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 to 9. God says, I will tell of a decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Look to me, the one who has declared that uh, you are my son. Look to me, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your heritage. Trust me. Satan was offering Jesus a shortcut to power, a shortcut to authority. 
And Jesus, in this moment, could have decided, ha, I'll take the shortcut. I know the path that I'm on. It's leading to the cross. It's leading to suffering. It's leading to criticism. It's leading to a ministry that's going to be hard. But notice, what is the exchange? The exchange of power is also an exchange of worship. Satan says, if you want this, you have to worship me. Jesus acknowledges, yeah, that's true. But Deuteronomy 6.13, drawing from this passage, he says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Jesus recognized the, char- the character of God as being the one alone who could give ultimate authority and submitting himself to the will of the Father chose the path that God the Father had set him on so that he could actually inherit the authority that had been promised without the exchange of worship, worship to Satan. We probably don't get this much where we are but I want you to recognize that what you give yourself to believe and who you tend to trust is who you tend to worship. Where do you seek authority, security, influence, power, and control? It is often in these things that we put our faith, our confidence, and thus our worship. In this way, the wilderness illustrates dependence on God alone for power. This lack of protection Jesus who is exposed, no cities, no walls, no weaponry, no home field advantage, no trees to hide behind, wide open and vulnerable, and Jesus submitted himself to the authority of the Father and believed in the character of God. He will provide for me and he will give power to protect me. In verses 9 to 12, Jesus depends upon the promise of God. Depends upon the promise of God. Notice, he took him up to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here, Satan again attacks the claim of sonship. And here again, he now uses the words of God to tempt Jesus. Words that, uses the very words of God to try to bombard Jesus and to corrupt him, to get him to sin. Using this passage from Psalm 91, verses 11 to 12. This is perhaps the most sinister of temptations to actually use the word of God and to twist and distort and corrupt it for one's own purposes. In a sense, he's saying, take a leap of faith. If God is your father, and if this is an evidence of you as Messiah, prove it. Show that God is true. Show that God is dependable. Show that you trust in the promises of God and take a leap. What's really going on here? Satan uses scripture, beware. Satan uses scripture. But Jesus also uses scripture. He comes again to Deuteronomy chapter six, now verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Speaking of 
the people of Israel as they moved out from Egypt and moved their way to Mount Sinai. This complaining heart of the people, here they are again, Exodus chapter 17, verse 2, we see their complaining heart. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water drink, water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? He called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Seriously? After all of the miraculous works of God in Egypt, after God led them through the Red Sea, after God is showing his presence through the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke, they have the audacity to say, is the Lord among us or not? What they were doing is testing the Lord. They were seeking to force the issue and force God's hand. Is God here? Is he gonna deal with our comforts? Is he gonna, is he gonna help us as he's promised to help? Is he really here and are we really the people of God? They forced the issue. And God, by his grace, still provided water. But it wasn't the way he, de he designed to do it. They did not trust God and thus they sinned. They did not believe in the promises of God and the timeline of God. They presumed on God and they acted on their own behalf. In this way, the wilderness illustrates utter dependence. The promise of God that needs to tether our heart to the character of God, independent of feelings. So often our feelings uh, betray us. Our feelings are so up and down, but as we commit ourselves to the truth of who God is and allow God to work in the way he decides to work in the time in which God decides to work, we are demonstrating a commitment in faith to God and we will be victorious over sin. So how do we do this? How do we cultivate faith? If sin is constantly an issue of faith, how do we nurture faith in our lives? How do we cultivate that faith? How do we help to propel it and fan the flame of faith in our lives? Well, we cultivate dependence and faith through thanksgiving. We, do, we cultivate faith through thanksgiving. You see, the root of your sin is a lack of faith. More, more specifically, a lack of faith and confidence in the character of God. And so overcoming sin begins with undergirding our faith in God through the word of God as we come to understand and commit ourselves and anchor our hearts in the character of God. The Bible doesn't become our good luck charm. As I so often thought when I was growing up, if I knew more verses, if I quoted the verses when I was experiencing temptation, if I was in the word of God more, then I could be a better person. I could be more righteous, more holy. Well, let me tell you, Satan knows how to use God's word too. And the word of God is not a magic uh, token. It's not a way for you to overcome sin just by this, this mantra that you quote to yourself and you can all of a sudden become better. It doesn't work that way. The word of God is intended to change the way you think. 
It's meant to anchor your heart in the character of who God is. And as you begin to believe the things that God says about himself, then you can experience the victory that he has said you can have. So how does this work through thanksgiving? Notice, if the root of sin is a lack of faith, then the strategy of overcoming sin is, that is nurturing faith. How do we do this practically? Let me just briefly lead you through some, some ways that I believe we see the connection between faith and obedience and thanksgiving and obedience. Notice in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, what is the hallmark of disbelief? Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. What is the hallmark of disbelief? Thanklessness. The hallmark of disbelief is a, is a commitment that is against the character of God. They did not give thanks to him. They did not believe that he was who he really said he was. Didn't give thanks or praise to him. Think about anxiety. You know, you're familiar with this verse in Philippians chapter two or chapter four, verse six. How do you overcome anxiety and fears in your life? Well, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with what church? Thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all, under, all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Tether your heart to thanks. Believe that God is who he says he is. And believe it by calling attention to his character in the moment where crisis seems to be in control and taking you away. Believe that God can provide, that God has power and that God will perform his promises. Believe that. Anchor your heart to him in faith. Ephesians chapter four and five, I want you to uh, realize that there are no chapter divisions in the original. And I want to just, just lead you briefly through the, 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 uh, the list of sins and how to overcome sin in Paul's mind. He says, put away lying in chapter 425. Be angry and do not sin. Don't steal. Don't speak evil of others. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't be bitter or angry and full of slander. Don't be sexually immoral. Don't be discontent. Rather, be thankful. Because the truth is, if you believe in God and are thankful for what God has given to you, that none of those things will be true of your life. You won't have to lie because you'll be so settled in, in God's love for you and his acceptance of you. you. You won't have to be dishonest. You won't have to cover up. And you can trust God that when you do the wrong thing, you don't have to cover it up and you can embrace whatever the consequences are because God is faithful even in hard things. You don't have to steal because God provides. You can be thankful. It keeps going. It doesn't just stop at verse four. It goes then on to talk about the work of the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit in verse 18. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give thanks. Be filled with the Spirit. A life that's full of the Spirit will pour itself out 
in expression of thanks and faith, which is a commitment and a confidence in the character of God. Colossians chapter 3 says much the same thing. It says in verse 5, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness. Put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Don't lie to one another. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with thanksgiving in your heart to God. And what does it lead to? Verse 20, or verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You want to have a life of victory? You want to have a life of overcoming sin? Anchor your heart in the word of God, which informs you about the character of God. And when you are confronted with sin, thank God Not just that things could be or could be worse, but thank God that things are bad in the moment because God is working in your life to cultivate faith, to lead you to maturity, to accentuate your testimony about how wonderful God is, to help you realize that you can trust God when things are hard and that when you really, really want something that might be good and you want to get it your way instead of God's way, you can wait and trust that when God gives it to you, it will be better thank God so recognize the dangers as well and I'll close with this if you find in your life words and a posture that is critical if you find in your heart and life an attitude that is full of complaint an attitude that is full of discontent and wondering why other people have things that you don't. There's a jealousy, there's a bitterness, there's a hanging on to, man, God just doesn't love me as much as he loves that person. Then you are in perilous danger because sin is knocking at the door. Cultivate a life of thanks and you will experience the victory, the victory that Jesus demonstrates to us by a commitment to the word of God and a commitment to faith in the character of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that those words would be true, that we would recognize that sin will either keep us from this book or this book will keep us from sin as we tether our hearts to faith in the character of God. Oh God, help us to nurture that in our lives through thankfulness and praise. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming this morning. God bless you as you go.